Thank you, Alison. I um, apologise in advance for those of you who came to listen to a talk on the varieties of neoliberalism. Um, for reasons I'll mention in a moment, I decided rather late in the day that I probably ought to change my theme. Um, although, quite frankly, neoliberalism won't completely disappear because the variety of neoliberalism that we may be uh, within the event of currently is one which uh, attempts to extend, uh, attempts a kind of limitless extension of economic reason to the whole of social life. And uh, it is in fact perhaps for that reason that I've decided to change my topic because of the situation we're in today. A precarious situation, uh, especially for, for the humanities, I think, um, in the wake of the recent Brown report on university funding, which it has seemed to many is going to present a kind of systematic and continuous threat to the ongoing activity of research and teaching in the humanities in Britain. On the other hand, my title uh, reflects as well a certain embarrassment on my own part uh, with respect to this idea, or at least part of what is meant to be under threat here, this idea of research in the humanities. Um, if I have subtitled this Research in the Humanities, the idea, uh, I think I'd been telling you how one goes about one's business and the sort of thing one does it on and so on. Uh, but when you're asking about the very idea of something, um, I'm really asking about why we should think of doing any such thing in the first place. And, uh, and that is my question really today, is why we should think of doing any such thing at all. For my own part, um, I've, I've always been rather uncomfortable with the idea of research in the humanities, or, or at least research with respect to my own work in philosophy. I think that what I do can be, what I do as an academic, what I do in a university has three basic dimensions, and they're very straightforward. It's reading, writing, and teaching. That, that's what I do. But since I became an academic, it became clear to me very quickly that um, that dimension that I called writing was to be called a research output. And uh, my first appointment to the university coincided with the research assessment exercise of 1992, where uh, we had to submit for peer assessment a, a certain number of pieces of writing, for, uh, which would be ranked in, in, in a way to give us kind of a national view of um, excellence in, in every department. Um, and I, I, alre I already felt that talking about this as research and research outputs was a kind of, I, I, I first thought maybe it's a kind of aggrandizing of what I was doing when I was doing what I was calling writing. It somehow became, write, writing became research activity. Well, that, that movement, which part of me just thinks is a bit like changing talk from sofas to settees, 
um, has in fact been a long time coming. And I do want to raise uh, quite how far back one might begin to look with a quote from Martin Heidegger from an essay called The Age of the World Picture, which was written in 1938. And uh, he's talking about what he calls research workers. Now, the text on the screen might be a bit small, but I'm going to read everything out because there are people listening at home too, so they won't be able to read at all. So don't worry if you can't see this very well. But the first thing he says, the essence of what we today call science is research. <coughs> and his view here is that, that you have a kind of fun fundamental event in research, which is the opening up of a sphere or field for investigation. <coughs> and then once it's sort of been opened up, you might have uh, the pursuit of the activity through research experiment or the experimental method in natural sciences, or he notes through archival or source criticism in historiography. But the idea basically is you get the development of research as an ongoing... I'm not going to be able to see very well if you <laughs> Um, the development of research, the research idea as ongoing activity. And Heidegger says this about this ongoing activity. Research is not ongoing activity because the work is accomplished in institutions, but rather institutions are necessary because science, intrinsically as research, has the character of ongoing activity. So we get the development of uh, universities, for example, in the modern period, as the site through which ongoing activity can take place, where you get transmission of learning and results and so on. But it's not just the amassing, ongoing accumulation of more and more results. In fact, method itself will uh, alter in this um, movement and adapts itself with respect to and with the help of results. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that um, it's not only natural science which is well captured by this notion of research, but also um, historical researches or uh, archaeological research. And Heidegger, in the 1938 paper, thought that uh, historical or archaeological or archival research can be carried forward in an institutionalized way that is, in fact, closer to research in physics than, than other disciplines belonging to the faculty that history belongs to, namely the humanities faculty, which is, he says with uh, some irony, these others remain mired in erudition. And we're getting up towards a distinction here between research work and something else which is, remains mired in erudition, which will be very important for me in what follows. And there's a rather long quote now where he talks about the decisive development of the universities in this period. The decisive development of the modern character of science as ongoing activity forms men of a different stamp. The scholar disappears. He is succeeded by the research worker who is engaged in research projects. These, rather than the cultivating of erudition, lend to his work its atmosphere of incisiveness. The research worker no longer has, has, has oh, sorry, no longer needs a library at home. Moreover, he is constantly on the move. He negotiates at meetings and collects 
information of congresses. He contracts for commissions with publishers, the latter now determine along with him which books must be written. Romanticism of scholarship and the university will still be able to persist for some time in a few places. Well, I'm going to take up the challenge for these, for the romanticism of scholarship that he calls it here. And I want to start by thinking about something about the distinction not between the humanities and the sciences, but between two broad goals of inquiry quite generally conceived. And the first kind of goal is one that we associate very closely with empirical inquiries, where what you're aiming at, the telos of your activity, is um, truth. And the thought here would be that at the beginning of your inquiry, your condition as a researcher, or as an inquirer, is one of some kind of pre-theoretical ignorance. And you want to get yourself out of that condition by coming to know something about how things are. And so your inquiry will aim at this kind of revelation of, 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 of the truth. But I would say in contrast to that kind of inquiry, we might think of another kind, which we could call a conceptual inquiry, which aims, one might say, and I'll complicate this in a minute, but just for simplicity's sake, aims at clarity. So there's some, rather than a pre-theoretical ignorance, there's a pre-theoretical confusion. Now this distinction that I've just drawn here would belong to a conceptual inquiry because it, you might have been in the beginning in, in the beginning of, uh, of, of thinking about goals of inquiry. You might have thought that, well, they're all really just the same, but they go on in their way in slightly different ways. But here's a, a conceptual distinction for you to suggest that actually we have two kinds of inquiries. There, there may be mixed modes of these, but I'm saying that at a limit we can think maybe there are, are two kinds one which aims at truth and the other which aims at clarity. And one's concerned then with reality and the other one in a certain way with meaning. Well in the first case, the empirical inquiry, this is obviously closely connected to the idea of science. And the sort of structure of the inquiry that one might envisage here is you would start, as I said, with pre-theoretical ignorance, but perhaps with a puzzle. Puzzles arise when uh, we have um, uh, well-developed accounts of why things take place. For example, of uh, why um, economies tend to um, move into uh, boom periods where there are bubbles which eventually burst and you get um, a, a downturn. So there's a kind of standard way of thinking about what happens in, uh, in, in economic contexts. But then what happens if um, you get a bubble of this sort happening and then it doesn't burst or it seems to go on in a different way or that what happens afterwards isn't exactly a downturn? Then you have a kind of empirical puzzle and you say, well, we've got now to, we've had our standard model, we're going to have to do some work to try to see why what happened happened because it doesn't really fit with the kind of model that we already have. And then you might go through some... Uh, data collection about the events, um, maybe a present presentation of a new kind of hypothesis about what happened in this case, development of theory.
field. And the movement here would be from the puzzle or the problem to its solution, which would be some kind of thesis which you could then hand on to others as to say, well, you know, we had this rather unusual formation of events, but we can still explain it in the terms of our uh, general inquiry into this field in this sort of way. So you move from the, a, a situation of ignorance to one of a general of, of enlightenment, <coughs> which would be, in this case, um, knowledge, and we have the outcome in our hands, the research outcome, as it were, that you could put into the RAE debate. On the other hand, this conceptual inquiry is something that might be very characteristic of, of what we call philosophy. And here, in at least one view of this, instead of beginning with this ignorance, you begin in this condition of confusion. So instead of having a kind of empirical puzzle, you have some kind of impuzzlement or disorientation or some kind of disquietude where you're not, not sure what to say. A paradigm example of this in philosophy, in all traditions in fact, has been the example um, of a question that St. Augustine raises in his Confessions, and I'll come back to him later. Uh, St. Augustine asks a question about time, and he says, um, when nobody asks me, I haven't got a problem, but then as soon as somebody asks me to, to be explicit about what time is, I have no idea what to say. So in our ordinary life, we're quite competent at dealing with time, you know, being there on time, or being late, or uh, uh, meet you next Tuesday, or what did you do last Friday? So all our, all our sort of te tem temporal dimensions of our life is something that we inhabit uh, fairly comfortably. But then if somebody turns to you and says, yeah, so what is time? At that point we go, uh. And uh, the thought is that the sort of puzzle or impuzzlement condition that one is in at that point isn't something that could be resolved by the sort of inquiry of the first kind and re would require something else, some kind of philosophical investigation of, of some kind. Now, one of the, I've given the paradigm there of, um, uh, of time, but I think that there's another great example of, um, of this uh, question, an explicit posing of a question which causes this impuzzlement, and that's philosophy itself. So philosophy is, it, is itself something which when we ask what is philosophy, we are characteristically in the same kind of um, unclarity with respect to that as we are with other questions in philosophy. So the, the question what is philosophy is itself a typically philosophical question. And I want to suggest that a philosopher is always someone for whom philosophy is not given. So it's not that like I now know what philosophy is and I now know what at least contemporary views of correct method it is and I can go and pursue an inquiry in this or that area. Rather, uh, taking a point of departure in any case is already taking a stand in whether you're asking questions about philosophy or not. It's taking a stand with respect to what you think this inquiry is. You're already involved in, as it were, presuming for yourself some uh, understanding of what a philosophical inquiry would be, and one which at some other point might be called into question. Now we've got these two goals then, 
But we have also, as perhaps the material from Heidegger that I began with suggests, got two different kinds of cultures. Now that idea of the two cultures was made famous by the Cambridge scientist C.P. Snow that he gave a, give a, a lecture in 1959, which I'll, again, I'll come back to. Um, but I want, in, in this time that we have here, to explore this idea of two cultures and to try to offer some way of understanding the separation in the fields of research that we have with us today. There, there, there are two uh, more or less standard lines of response to the two cultures question. One um, which is illustrated by uh, a great philosopher called Onora O'Neill, who says actually they're much closer than you think. And uh, that kind of view in a certain way reflects the movement of modernity that, that Heidegger described that I had on at the beginning, where as it were, we're all being um, shoehorned into the model of um, uh, our work as research, being drawn into the research culture. So if they are closer than you think, she may well be right. <laughs> uh, but the other view um, is that, uh, which is it, it, it represented recently by Simon Critchley, but uh, goes back much further than him, is to think that there are two lines two general lines or traditions out of um, post-enlightenment European inquiry. Now, the kind of view that I want to pr propose to you tonight is, is, is a, perhaps a variation on Simon Critchley's, but what I want to suggest is that there are indeed two heritages within or inside everything European. And the European dimension of this is something that I'm not going to be able to let go of altogether. Now to try to uh, draw out this idea that there are these two heritages or two cultures or two traditions inside, inside everything European, um, to explain this I want to go back a bit before the two cultures worry to a, uh, a tradition in Europe which will still be this tradition of more than one tradition if I'm right, a tradition in Europe that preceded it and out of which it grew. And that's the tradition that has come to be known as humanism. And I'm going to say a little bit about European humanism in a moment. Um, but I'm going to start with its most obvious offspring, which is the humanities. Now here's the humanities in Latin, as it were. Literaris humaniores. Um, this title, is the name of the classics faculty at Oxford University. And if you do Litari Humaniores at Oxford even today, uh, you would be involved in studies which, in a way that will be marked as the talk goes along, are profoundly European in character. You'll be specifically covering Greek and Latin language, Greek and Roman history and literature, and philosophy, Greek to modern. And uh, the last sentence here, this is the archetypal humanities course, is from Wikipedia. Um, and uh, it's interesting that, that it says that, because in a way that's quite correct. But what I want to suggest now is that the 
idea of the humanities in this, this form goes back a lot further. Now this name, first of all, Litara Humaniores, it literally means more humane letters. That more does not mean uh, an additive more, but uh, um, uh, evaluative more. It's, it's uh, more rather than less, rather than more, more than you've, not more than you've done, but uh, more rather than less humane. So uh, a very prosaic rendering is advanced studies, since humaniores is opposed to the less educated, the less refined, or the less learned. And literari also includes a reference to learning, the man of letters, as it were. But both of these um, have other names as well, and a particularly important Roman one would be, or Latin one would be, studia humanitatis, which in the English language tradition, and particularly since uh, the great debates over the university <coughs> between um, Mill and Newman, um, is called a liberal education. And the idea is that if you've gone through uh, Litari Humaniores, or uh, this kind of Studia Humanitatis, you're not being given a vocational training. That's the absolutely crucial part. The, the, the sort of um, inquiries that you undertake won't be giving you an opportunity to become a minister, or to become a doctor, or to become <coughs> an engineer, or some particular vocational or professional training. Rather, it's the idea of a certain kind of enculturation. The German, and not the English, has a great word for this, which is Bildung. Bildung uh, doesn't often translate it as education, but it's much more about bringing you into a cultural space which will be more humane rather than less. And it will be a movement or, or uh, an education through which one becomes a well-rounded human being. So this liberal education idea is this classic thought of the humanities that uh, liberal education produces these well-rounded human beings, which it was always recognized would make you fit for any profession. It's not as if this was a non-economic conception of what could go on in universities. There has never, ever been a non-economic conception of the university, but the thought was, and particularly through the 19th and into the early 20th century, as the transformation of the in the transformation of the economy from uh, sort of, um, early capitalist to a much more mature capitalist environment, and also one where the demands of the economy needed well uh, in, um, needed a, a well-educated, literate uh, managerial class. The universities were going to provide for that economic imperative through a liberal education. So you have in this the achievement of a kind of cultivated literacy for those who have gone through the process. I'm going to call them, for reasons which will only become clear at the end, good readers. They are the good, you become the good reader. And uh, there was this idea in the period when all European intellectuals uh, thought and wrote in Latin, there was the Republic of Letters, where all across Europe, intellectuals could write to each other and share in <coughs> debates and so on. Well, uh, we don't all do it in Latin. In fact, we nearly all do it in English, which is another matter. But um, the Republic of Letters now will mean 
communication not only across the globe in present time, but also uh, with the dead, those who are um, departed but have left their books. There's still this relationship of um, the cultivated literary, literary person who um, has, as it were, a place as a citizen in the Republic of Letters. And, it, and what is cultivated here in general is this a literary and literate culture. Now, as I say, uh, um, Wikipedia gives um, Litare Humaniores at Oxford the position of archetype of humanities, but as I suggested, it goes back much further. Um, engaging in Litare Humaniores presupposed that one strove to embody what Cicero called humanity. Humanitas, and that was the in in Cicero, so in in the Roman Republic, uh, it's the formation of an ideal speaker. So you have somebody who moves from a condition in which, uh, when they're talking, nobody can follow it, nobody finds it convincing, nobody's interested, to one in which um, you, you're formed as a kind of ideal speaker, and he called that the cultivation of humanitas. Now I'm going to go back to Heidegger here because he's got a little comment on humanitas which draws it back to a Greek origin in a really interesting way. So this is from Heidegger. Humanitas, explicitly so-called, was first considered and striven for in the age of the Roman Republic. So that's the Cicero example. Homo humanus was opposed to homo barbarus. Homo humanus here means the Romans, who exalted and honoured Roman virtues through the embodiment of the paideia, uh, the Greek word there, education, taken over from the Greeks. These were the Greeks of the Hellenistic age whose culture was acquired in the schools of philosophy. It was concerned with scholarship and training in good conduct. Paideia, thus understood, was translated as humanitas. And he goes on. The genuine Romanitas of Homo Romanus consisted in such humanitas. We encounter the first humanism in Rome. It therefore remains in essence a specifically Roman phenomenon which emerges from the encounter of Roman civilization with the culture of late Greek civilization. The so-called Renaissance of the 14th and 15th centuries in Italy, which of course is a re rebirth of uh, the Roman, is a Renaissancia Romanitatis, because Romanitatis is what matters, it is concerned with humanitas, and therefore with great Greek pedia. The Homo Romanus of the Renaissance also stands in opposition to Homo Barbarus, but now the inhumane is the supposed barbarism of Gothic scholasticism in the Middle Ages. Now with this humanism, where there's this idea of striving to cultivate the humanity of man, Homo Humanus, rather than the sort of lower, uh, less refined Homo Animalis, the Homo Barbarus. With the tradition of humanism embedded into European culture in this way, European humanity becomes a missionary culture, because what's in, what they're concerned with is no longer something specifically regional. It's not just about cultivating the Romanness of the Romans, but the humanitas of the Romans. Okay, and the humanitas is something which would, in principle, belong to all humanity. 
So the decisive feature of the humanist tradition is the movement from the particular towards what is universally human. It becomes a missionary culture and therefore in certain ways colonial too. Now that universally human conception uh, would have been again reaching back to a Greek conception of those who go through Pedia was, uh, well, at least in Aristotle, but not only there, understood in, in the Greek as the zoon logon echo, the zoon, the living thing, uh, zoon logon echo, it's the living thing with the capacity for logos, which that word, uh, we're mostly now familiar with it from the Bible where it says in the beginning was the logos, and so we get translated there as, it gets translated there as word. It's a very uh, um, plurivocal word, um, which also meant for the Greeks understanding <coughs> and meaning and definition and uh, reasoning and arguing. So we are the Zoan Logon Ekon, and in a very faithful translation through the Romans, this gets appropriated or transposed, translated as uh, animale rationale, the living thing with logos becomes the animale rationale, that is, logos is interpreted as ratio, of, of rationality. And today, the idea of the human as the rational animal is uh, the legacy of that early humanism. Now, the task of um, devoting yourself to something which is uh, knowledges which are not only particular, but in some way um, universally human was understood in the Renaissance in a particular way in terms specifically of the universal validity of scientific objectivity. So what always a concern is a question of something uh, universal and not just particular and in the Renaissance in, uh, the task of um, uh, of moving from the less refined to the more refined position would be through the acquisition of universally valid knowledge and this would be pursued through scientific objectivity so we end up uh, it's changed its title but I'm sorry different title but, but same neoliberalism no it's now on uh, the humanities no, I came for your definition of neoliberalism. Okay. But you are the same man. I am the same man. <laughs> so I listened for a little while. Okay. So we have then, uh, through the Renaissance, certainly, uh, the emergence of two cultures. But they're two humanist cultures, very distinctively European humanist cultures of thinking. One which would become research work in objectively valid science, and the other what Heidegger tongue-in-cheek calls humanistic erudition, cultivating the humanity of man, the humanitas of homo. Well, those two cultures do indeed have some kind of rivalry, and in Britain at least this came to a head, as I said, in 1959, with the Cambridge scientist C.B. Snow, who gave a lecture in which he diagnosed the loss of a common culture in modern Western society. So that humanist tradition seemed to be in a condition of quite radical bifurcation. And the emergence, he says, of two distinct cultures, the scientists 
and what he calls the literary intellectuals. Now, he's a very interesting character because presumably like most scientists of his generation, he had a classical education. He wasn't like uh, just a mere technical man or, or research worker in some rather uh, depleted sense. He would have read the classics and would have himself gone through what I was calling the humanist kind of education. And so this rift that he sees is indeed something almost inside himself as well. However, he's looking out at the world at this point, and this is what he says. In our society, that is, in Western society, we have lost even the pretense of a common culture. Persons educated with the greatest intensity we know can no longer communicate with each other on the plane of their major, major intellectual concern. This is serious for our creative, intellectual, and above all, normal life. It is leading us to interpret the past wrongly, to misjudge the present, and to de deny our hopes of the future. It is making it difficult or impossible for us to take good action. But what had really come to a head here in the discourse of the two cultures was a fundamental question about what it would be to pursue a properly humanist education, that is, to go through something like advanced bildung or literae humaniores in the sense of moving you from the less refined to the more refined. What is going to be a proper training for modern mind? Is it science or the classics? Well, it's certainly the case that those people whose life and work today is rooted in literae humaniores in the class classical tradition do think that there are dimensions of our life and our being in the world which will not be properly acknowledged or properly understood if we remain exclusively with the research methods of natural science or archival historiography. And there are lots of themes in literature, in art and philosophy that people within the humanities would say we can provide some kind of enlightenment because those two goals that I began with are both modes of enlightenment although moving in different directions kinds of enlightenment simply unavailable to science and the likely themes here will include birth and death and everything in between so here's a list and uh, a rather long list as you can see but all of these things would be um, dimensions of our life which somebody whose understanding was rooted in the literary humanities would think is simply unavailable or radically diminished if we take a perspective which is exclusively scientific childhood family learning language reading and writing race, personal identity, emotions and feelings, consciousness, sanity, disability, sex, and so on and on and on. Interestingly, of course, also science should be in there. We won't really understand science properly if we only uh, think of scientific inquiry as the way to understand it. I'm going to give you a very quick example from uh, the place where I work in the European Institute here at the LSE where one of the main questions that concerns all of us there might be something about what it means to be European. 
cases of European institutes are all interested in the question what is Europe, what does it mean to be European and so on. And there's been this ambition in some way to come reflectively to terms with what one might call the insider understanding of who we Europeans are for any Europeans. And there would be a kind of social science approach which would want to ape the methods of the natural sciences. And they might think this is one standard route of uh, response to this kind of question in the social sciences, which is that there'll be questionnaires sent out to <coughs> re-identified Europeans. So although they want to know what it means to be European and so on, they actually have decided already, because they're only going to give the questionnaire out to already identified Europeans. And, and then you, know, you have questions about how, you know, how European do you feel? Or, um, you know, what, what, I don't know, you can imagine the kind of nonsense. But um, there would then be, on the basis of these questionnaires, data analysis and some kind of conceptualization and the results. And, and, and if you look at political scientists and social scientists' work on this sort of thing, they love doing graphs where you have Germany at one end and Britain at the other. And uh, they, they say, why aren't those people more like those people? And so on. Now, for me, there's a dimension to this kind of inquiry which is uh, very problematic. First of all, the kind of questions that are asked in the questionnaires, although they could be answered by the person who's uh, distributing it, they're not asked in a way such that the questioner is placed in question. And what I mean by that is that uh, the inquirer thinks, look, I'm here, my object is there, and I'm trying to get some kind of cognition of that object. But there's no um, uh, taking into account in the design here of this that they themselves might be somewhere inside the object that they're investigating. I mean, for example, even this, what, they wouldn't ask what it means to be an entity that asks questions. That wouldn't be an issue for them. What does it mean to be an entity that pursues science? They're getting on with their job. They're not asking the question of what it is that I'm doing when I'm doing this. But more profoundly, what relation does this questioning have to Europe? And I think that's a massive question, because what if the very kind of inquiry that they're pursuing is inside rather than independent of and outside the very object of their inquiry? I mean, it may be that this kind of questioning, as I've perhaps already suggested, is, is itself already deeply European. And then Heidegger asks the question, which would follow from all of that, what happens to us, essentially, in the ground of our existence when science becomes our passion? What happens to us when we no longer, as it were, calling ourselves in question in the form of our inquiry, and that we think that everything that needs explaining and understanding are going to be understood if they're going to be properly done, in scientific terms. You get kind of weak-kneed people who say, oh, I'm sure a little bit of understanding is gained by a novel or poems or pictures or stuff. But, you know, in terms of cognitive, uh, co comparable cognitive superiority, science is way up there and the arts are way down here. And the, the right, whenever you open up a field of inquiry, the right way of exploring it is going to be scientific. Well, in answer to this question, what are the grounds of our existence when science becomes our passion? I'm asking, I want to ask questions about that ground, about that self-understanding through which we come to think that this kind of inquiry is the right one to, to 
pursue. And the grounds of our existence uh, for Heidegger and for others, and as I've suggested here, are rooted in a European tradition. And that tradition, uh, that ground, it, it could be conceptualized in lots and lots of ways. But one proposal which I give to my students, but I also give it and say, but don't, don't stop with this. This is the kind of first thought which we'll explore in a great length in the weeks to come. Um, is uh, a line from the Lithuanian French, um, Lithuanian-born French philosopher Emmanuel Levin, Levinas, who says, "Europe is the Bible and the Greeks." Now, that idea of saying it's not like uh, the Bible and the Greeks were very important in in the formation of an understanding that developed in this kind of region. No, the regionality too has to be understood through the, these this tradition of more than one tradition. Europe can't be assigned an exclusively geographical uh, limit. Now that double act of the Bible and the Greeks is, is put in, in different ways in different writers, and Levinas is certainly not the first to say it. Uh, often it's put in terms of towns, Athens and Jerusalem, or Hellenism and Hebraism. But in any case, what I'd like to suggest is that we see these traditions, this or this tradition of more than one tradition as, as something that is, as it were, at war with itself in everything European. So not just in the idea of two cultures, but also in, at, at every moment within the two cultures, within, if there are two, uh, within each one, there will also be this war going on in different ways with different uh, power struggles. I'm going to give you a quick example from philosophy. Uh, which is about the way people think about what giving a good argument is in philosophy. Very important thing, arguing about argument. Um, what would be the right, the responsible, the right way of going on in philosophy? And this is a quote from a brilliant American philosopher called Cora Diamond. She says, when we engage in philosophical discussion about such a subject as abortion or the moral status of animals, whom should we think of ourselves as trying to convince? For if we proceed by giving arguments, and she's thinking there of the sort of rather narrowly construed deductive, more or less deductive, I mean obviously there are a lot of paradigms that are deductive, but all of the sort of premises and conclusions kinds of arguments she's thinking about here. If we proceed by giving arguments, we presumably do not expect to be able to convince anyone who is incapable of following our arguments, or who is too prejudiced to consider them. And if we're talking about convincing human beings, surely it is a fact about many of them that one certain way of not convincing them is to try arguing the case. And indeed that would hold true not just with ordinary human beings, but with philosophers. And it's often it's a kind of joke amongst philosophers that no philosopher ever changed their view on the basis of reading an argument by somebody else. But what she's considering here is um, what it is that we think we're appealing to when we're trying to be convincing in philosophy. And she thinks that uh, the people who, as it were, love argument of the narrow sort think that what we've got to appeal to is, is, is as it were, our rationative capacities. But she thinks that if we're really thinking about abortion or the moral status of animals, uh, this in 
involves the human being in dimensions which exceed and can't be reduced to the merely rationalism. And so she thinks that arguments of that narrow kind are one way in which we try to bring conviction. It's a very important way. And she thinks that there's probably no philosopher who doesn't include arguments of that kind. However, she doesn't think it's the only way, nor does she think it's necessarily the best way. She sets up as uh, the uh, sort of gold standard of what could bring about what she wants to call moral development. So moving from a less refined to a more refined position with respect to your moral vision. Uh, imaginative literature, where if you read Dickens, is her favourite examples, where if you're reading Dickens at the time especially, she thinks he could be opening your eyes to working conditions of ordinary people in Great Britain in a way that no argument from a mill or a Bentham or anything like this could possibly get hold of if you genuinely want to turn somebody around with respect to some question. And that's because she wants to say we're not. Being a rational animal doesn't mean that sort of narrowly rationative idea that we're wanting to think about it. Now I'm very, um, I'm, I'm myself influenced by Cora Diamond's views on this, and when I've thought about my own work in philosophy, I do want to think about it in terms of some kind of uh, movement of self-development or self-transformation that I hope will take place, I, perhaps through the encounter of my text, but for me certainly in, the count in my encounter of texts by other people. And uh, in the tradition that I'm perhaps closest to, which is called phenomenology, this idea of cultivating yourself in some way is very important. And this is a, a quotation from my book in the name of phenomenology that Alice mentioned. So this is a quote from me. What characterizes an investigation in phenomenology is a work of convincing words, which in an age dominated by science, aims to cultivate and develop your capacity faithfully to retrieve yourself or for yourself as from the inside a radically revised or revisioned understanding of yourself and your place in the world with others. So there's this idea that through the engagement with the work of convincing words, which is not about writing philosophy as if you're a poet or writing a novel or, or anything like that. It's, 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 it's by the philosopher's lights that they're taking a stand on what philosophy can be when they want to write in this way. They're probably also taking a stand on the view that not everybody will achieve this work of convincing words as well as anybody else. So that just as, unfortunately, we're not all great artists or great poets, so also it would be fair <coughs> to say that, that um, phenomenological giftedness isn't shared out amongst us equally. And in my own reading and writing on phenomenology, I've certainly experienced that. But this idea of cultivating oneself is very important for me. Now, this idea then that, that there's a, a dimension of self-transformation in the encounter with a text, which I find at the heart of the sort of philosophy I'm interested in, this kind of idea of, uh, of self-transformation is also very important to one of the people that Alice said I also write about, Jack Derrida. And in, in the preface to one of his books, he comes back to talk about something that I said, promised I'd talk about, which is the bad reader. So I'd said that, as it were, the 
for me the, a, a crucial uh, ambition in the work of the literary humanities is to cultivate the good reader. Well, here's Der Derrida on the bad reader. Now, the, the bad reader is the one who thinks they already know what it would be to pursue an inquiry um, responsibly or in the right kind of way or methodologically in, in the uh, most responsible way. Because I still like him, well, he's a very generous man, uh, because I still like him, I can foresee the impatience of the bad reader. This is the way I name or accuse the fearful reader, the reader in a hurry to be determined, decided upon deciding. One wishes to know in advance what to expect, one wishes to expect what has happened, one wishes to expect oneself. Now it is bad, and I know of no other definition of the bad, it is bad to predestine one's reading. It is always bad to foretell, it is bad, reader, no longer to like retracing one's steps. What's being resisted by the bad reader is any idea that they themselves will be called into question in their understanding of what it is to be a human being or what it is to pursue an argument rigorously or satisfactorily or what would count as the appropriate way of going on in philosophy. That there would be nothing like the possibility of a transformation of their self-understanding through the encounter with the text. We already know exactly what inheriting the heritage in the right way is and what the most responsible way of going on is. It's given. And as I said at the beginning, for me, the most interesting thing about philosophy <coughs> is that that dimension is precisely not given. So retracing one's steps is a crucial part of this. But this now, today and in our time, includes stepping back from the presumed universalism of the classical humanities, its humanism, the idea that it is through humanistic studies that we achieve a proper education for all men. Indeed, now we would say for all men and women, but that's hardly a transformation in the conception. But the trouble for literary humanities today is precisely the universalism of European humanism, which has been called into question in the, 20, in the course of the 20th century. So that there could be no simple going back to the idea that through a liberal education you cultivate the humanitas of homo. We know that that tradition has also been, in its missionary dimension, connected with a history of colonization, of Europeanization, of a certain globalization, of a missionary transformation of every other into European man. And this critique of humanism takes place inside the humanities. And in a certain way, in doing so, the modern humanities cuts off its own classic raison d'etre, its own reason to be. And perhaps then one might think in that context, there just is no future for the humanities, no future for research in the humanities. And the very idea of research in the humanities not only involves a certain kind of conflation with the kinds of activities that appropriately go on in science, but also involve a kind of estimation of its ambition, which is uh, fundamentally questionable and problematic, namely its uh, 
the universalism of this humanities humanism. So perhaps there is no future for research in the, in the humanities. Well, I don't think so. This is my last slide. I want to think again about research in the humanities. The first idea of research in the humanities is the one that belongs classically to the classic tradition, where the task could be thought of, this is uh, Edmund Husserl, but it could come from anywhere. The task is thought of as an infinite task, where there is no end to the work of the rational animal to inquire with respect to its own uh, conceptions and understandings, no end to improvement and development and becoming more refined. Indeed, if the idea of that coming to an end is a kind of uh, contradiction, because if you are a rational creature, if you are a rational animal, then you are only being what you are when you're engaged in this kind of ra rational activity. So Husserl talked about the entelechy, which is a being in the business of your being. You're in the business of your being when you're being rational. So there can't be a kind of coming to an end of that for rational man no, who say, ah, now we're all rational and we're all there and it's all over. No, this one, he calls it an infinite task. It's a universal task and an infinite task for the rational animal. Well, through the 20th century, we found in the modern humanities what one might call the critical task, which is that movement of calling into question the legitimacy and, uh, and humanism of the universalism of the, the classic humanities. I'm calling this a, a, a concern with the politics of difference with respect to um, three others of classic European man. And the other who is not a man, so you have the sexual thing of sexual difference. You have the other who is not a European man, so you have a kind of racialized other. And then you have uh, the uh, our utmost other other animals, um, the non-human life of, uh, of, of, of animals who would also be, as it were, specifically different in its configuration with uh, European man being established as the norm of rational humanity for all humanity. So this has been a kind of emerging um, position or... or, or uh, or, or movement within the humanities in the 20th century, characterised by this politics of difference, and quite clearly and very explicitly is uh, what might call a left, a left wing project. It's been involved in a certain critique, which is a left critique. Now, if, um, if somebody today was to say, well, what we need then is to sweep away all that old rubbish, that old sort of humanist scholarship idea, and replace it with um, this new critical task. That would be somewhat akin to somebody who, in politics, having been elected, said, right, well, we can get rid of all those other rubbish parties, because they're called sort of rubbish, <laughs> and, uh, and they're mired in stuff that we don't want to be mired in. Uh, and so it would sweep away others in the humanities who do not see politics as the end, with all inquiry, and indeed perhaps don't see it as the beginning of inquiry either. So I I'm not content with the gestures of that critical humanities who thinks that that should, as it were, what should the future of humanities belongs to them, or, or me if I'm in there. But the thing that, that 
What I want to have is something more embracing, which would include this, but would not dismiss anybody who wasn't, as it were, on board in their political project. And I'm replacing the two with something else called the inexhaustible search, which has some definite relation to the first one. But for me, is about a certain experience that belongs to the good reader. The good reader, remember, is the one who doesn't mind uh, retracing their steps. But the good reader is also the one who, when they read a text, they also experience it as not over, but that the possibility of reading again belongs to the experience of its interest. So it's not all done and dusted in one go. What an extraordinary thing that you can have a text, a work of words, which when you've read it all, you still find that there is something to come in it, and that this book, instead of now lying behind you, still lies ahead of you. And that idea of a text which is ahead of us and remains to come for us, or problems that may have that character too, the idea of the inexhaustible search, the idea of text which, for which there is really no end of uh, reading, is for me what belongs at the heart of literary humanities today. And there's a lovely quote from St. Augustine, who I mentioned earlier with respect to time, who very interestingly was a Roman African, which I think is a, another thing that we don't know anything about and need to know more about. Um, I won't read out the Latin, although I'll come to it one bit in a moment, because the search says more than the discovery. That kind of idea of the ambition of work, which understands that the inexhaustible search is actually the whole point of the business, rather than coming out with a result that you could sort of hand out as a research output at the end of it. Interesting, just, just so you know, the word discovery in the Latin was inventio, so he was writing at a time before the modern distinction of invention and discovery. Inventio was this <coughs> movement in which we produce things, we invent things through which we can make discoveries with respect to uh, the world, so because the search says more than discovery. So I don't do research, I do search. And I don't apply a method, but I do, I think, in a certain way, want to inhabit texts from the Republic of Letters. I read, write, and I teach. And I do so in the name of an experience of reading as not over, of understanding as yet to come. Thank you very much.
uh, source, it was never simply not religious, as it were, but it was, um, and one of the crucial features of the idea of the rational animal, which gets embedded in Christian anthropology in Europe through the idea that uh, amongst the whole dimension of ens creatum, of created things, the human is distinctive in that it's made in the image of God, is that the uh, development of our rationality, which is absolutely at the heart of humanism, and they understand this movement from homo barbarus to homo humanus as the rational animal on its way towards, as it were, becoming increasingly rational from a barbaric condition to a civilized one. That idea, that the idea of that teleological history was um, absolutely firmly grasped as a uh, providential history, as a the in theologically. So uh, Kant, for example, would talk about the plan of nature, but then in a footnote he'd say, by nature here I mean, of course, a wise creator. And this, this development of the, the human in its rationality was always regarded as absolutely at one with a kind of religious conviction. And that movement into the critical humanities that I described at the end itself also belongs to the unravelling of that in which, from the blows of Darwin and others, we have um, lost our... Uh, well, we're more resistant than the than those medieval scholars knew how to be, or the early modern scholars knew how to be, to naturalistic accounts of the origin of humanity and completely untheological accounts of, or non-theodistial accounts of human history. So, absolutely was central. Today, it's really not. And that's another of those moments of the unravelling of the humanities in our So, second question. Second one, when you're talking about European, you so said the European, what, how can we define the European? Wouldn't it make sense more if we put the West against East rather than European and non-European? That's a very good question. <coughs> I mean, the, the West, of course, was Europe for a long time. And uh, what, when other countries westernized or were colonized and became, became Western, or they were populated by Westerners, they became part of the West too, rather than extending the idea of Europe. However, uh, I, I, and, I, and I, I don't, I would actually want to say, because I'm taking a non-geographical conception of Europe, I would literally want to say there's more than one European continent, okay? Um, but uh, I think it's very important, in a way, to see that that Western idea isn't just geopolitical, right? It isn't just something that emerges in the course of uh, Cold War or, or something like this, but but the idea of the West, and indeed the idea of its contrast to the East, begins at the beginning of Europe, and not uh, it doesn't sort of emerge uh, in some free way in the course of uh, recent times. Is that okay? Yeah, there's a question here from the man <coughs> who came to the wrong talk. About the encounter with the text. Of course, the text can also be a semiotic animal. That means there can be pictures in it. Sure. There can be all yeah. kinds of things. Absolutely. So therefore, at that point, we are already a step forward into more complexities which transcend the geographical, but not necessarily the distance between the searcher and researcher or the classical man uh, and the scientist. I give an example. You mentioned Dickens. Now let's assume Dickens 
uh, would not have emanated from a middle class family which was uh, deprived of uh, an advance yeah. uh, uh, and therefore experienced the things which interest now everybody and hadn't written that down. So two things, firstly, if he hadn't been middle class before and then experienced the poverty and write it to us in text, if you instead would encounter this by a verbal contribution, by saying that you would not teach at LSE, but in Leeds, and you were uh, not, I am not uh, uh, riding the geographical horse, I'm just saying that the north looks different at everything what is said uh, in the moment after uh, the last 20 years of experience than the South, including its intellectuals, which of course are there in dire straits and they are not very numerous, whilst here you know, they step on each other's feet. Well, the, not, not at the LSE they don't, because I don't know how many people there are who work in the humanities and regard themselves. Yeah, yeah, so I, ex I accepted the, uh, the humanities, yeah. sorry, yeah. obviously they are exceptions. Yes, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm not really sure how to answer you, but there's one thing that, uh, that it does... Think of Habermas well, and his I'll, I'll definition about what of the yeah. the, the, um, the thing that I had in the talk, which I think is kind of interesting with respect to that, is in the Heidegger quote about humanism, um, when he, when he emphasises that this humanism, which essentially is the uh, idea of the ambition of the movement away from particularity, <laughs> towards some general humanity, always retains its particularity. It's not something that could ever, that he thinks, I mean, because ultimately he's going to criticize, he too would criticize this conception of the human through the anthropology of the ancient world and the Christian world. Um, but the, he, one of the things he, he would sort of insist on in this is that this adventure, this humanist adventure, was always all, also specific. So it remains in essence specifically Roman. I mean, of course, he's interested to say there that when something is specifically Roman, that makes it really very Greek, because the Greek is what's retrieved in the Roman. And so I'm sure you're right that in any analysis of uh, somebody who's wanting to make a general and ambitious claim, um, structures of particularity, of class, of, of race, and all these things are involved in there. And then I think that one of the great features of uh, uh, of reading that's emerged in, in the course of, you know, after Marx and beyond um, is the way in which these uh, characteristics of text show themselves to us now in new ways. Anyway, we'll go on. Uh, yes, Professor.
free, did it? No, no, that, that's all right. Yeah, all right. I mean, no, it, it's... But, but look, I mean, it wasn't an encounter with poetry that did it for me. No. It was an encounter with Dickinson that did it for me. Yeah. But it was an encounter with philosophy and not with a philosopher. Yeah. Now, of course, I needed a couple of philosophers to, you know, be introduced to philosophy, yeah. right? But yeah. the very fact that I, that I've changed, starting to feel clumped now with this question, <laughs>
everything that we discover seems to already be have been discovered in many ways. I think it's almost hard to have a passionate drive in areas of humanities and philosophy for well, like younger people today. I think that one of the things that does, in a way, uh, connect with with my answer to the previous question and, and what I'm uh, what I'm interested in the possibility of finding from teaching in the humanities is the idea of a professor who is the idea of a professor who, as it were, um, is interested in in this engagement of transformation. Um, now, whether the universities in this country or anywhere else are going to offer a place for that. You remember Heidegger saying in 1938, uh, he's saying um, romanticism of scholarship and the university, and he means the university, he doesn't mean, he means the university in a sort of classical sense, so he, he's including the university. Romanticism scholarship at the university will still be able to persist, per, persist for some time in a few places. And on, a, on, on when I'm feeling depressed about things, that's that's how it looks. But, uh, that's how it will be. And you said that as a as a Nazi officer, you must see uh, that he was a, a, an academic Nazi. Yeah. So he said this thing that means he was at the same time. Being in Nazi administration, yeah, hit by Hitler actually, yeah, 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 put him to make this point, this crucial point, yeah, <laughs> which our friend there, when he says that he couldn't see it in Kant's contribution, so everyone has to throw to him. What about Hegel, who didn't write anything down? Yeah, Nothing was written. So you had to wait until somebody was but making that's not true. About people himself. did write. But listen, the, the uh, Heidegger here in 1938, he was not, he was no longer rector, he resigned. And he resigned because of what the Nazis had yeah, asked him yeah, to do, and he refused to do it. Transformation starts, yeah. So, um, Heidegger, <coughs> I'm not saying he was a good man. Right? He is, <laughs> he is a good man, there's no question. But, and I are But I am, I am interested in what he's saying here. And um, he has an idea, a, a conception of what's happening in the development of modern science, in, the, in fact, in the development of science from its Greek beginnings which forecloses certain questions and privileges others so that we are left in our time in this rather bleak space. Um, certainly in a few places, but one, one sort of glimmer of hope, as it were, that one could have here. Let's suppose that we go down the route that uh, the Brown Report wants to take us and that um, means that uh, effectively you get privately funded universities or universities whose funding is almost exclusively through um, the uh, repayment of fees by former students. Um, this will bring about a situation very like, that, that is very like certain institutions in America. Now what people are worried about here is that people will only choose their courses on very crude utilitarian grounds and the interest in all this kind of literary humanity stuff will well, they, they won't see it as paying anything, paying off in any way, and so won't choose it, and they'll vote with their feet for financially rewarding courses. But in America, where, I mean, they have a different <coughs> position, maybe we can't hope to get there, but maybe we can hope, if we do go there, <coughs> for a situation where 
prestigious universities in America are private and where they uh, cultivate the humanities perhaps more than anywhere else. They want to be the world leaders in philosophy and literature and so on. And so they don't see the sort of funding system as determining a kind of future for them. So I, I, I would say that, that it's not all over if that happens. My own preference, incidentally, if anybody remotely interested, was that we would, would retain a co-funding situation uh, where we've got quite so many people going to university in Britain as we do today. I don't think it's realistic to have this fully funded by the state anymore. I don't think it has been possible for a long time. But I do like the idea of a co-funding structure because I like the idea that the state acknowledges that there's a societal benefit as well as an individual benefit. But that, that, that's, uh, that's a kind of just my own, as it were, hope preference. Yeah. So, um, I'm interested by your uh, quote that uh, arguments very seldom change people's opinion. Yeah. Um, and I guess this is, I mean, as a philosopher, this is the kind of observation you have sometimes. Um, but I was interested in how you um, contrast that. So the, po the point of the humanities in your picture, or what the humanities are doing, is they're, they're, they're involved in some sort of search. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to know how you square up the notion of, look at it, in a sense, it isn't kind of the point of the humanities or the philosophy to be able to convince anyone of anything, but to no, no, I agree. Really, I, I, I do. I think that I think that the convincing, the convincing work of words is absolutely fundamental to philosophy. And I also think, as I said, that I think that there will be no philosopher, certainly none that I would recognise as a philosopher, who has no arguments of a rather narrow sort too. But my my argument following Cora Diamond would be to say, uh, uh, then one shouldn't think that that's the only thing that a philosopher can do, or exclusively the thing that a philosopher can do in attaining to a kind of gold standard of rational conviction, right? And so I, I do want the great texts of philosophy for me to be, you know, convincing, not because of their persuasiveness in some uh, second-rate sense, but absolutely because of their convincingness in, in the best possible sense. But what I want to, to make available to us as philosophers is a notion of, of being um, legitimately convinced by something, that is to say that we to regard one view as in better shape than another because of the way it's been arrived at, <coughs> as, as including within that um, kinds of writing which uh, people who are sort of um, uh, intent on seeing a certain kind of narrow argument as the only responsible way of going on in philosophy, as, as something they need to, to get beyond. And, and the search part doesn't doesn't have it's not as if it's not like it achieves preliminary results. I'm sure that would be a, a reasonable way of putting it. But the um, but it also it does it absolutely doesn't do nothing. It's not like just keep searching or something like that. that, that that's not quite how it is. It, it's much more organised than that. And if you're in, in, in on the tail of certain texts, certain arguments, certain discussions. I think you would regard it as uh, as a phenomenologically um, distorting to think that you are just sort of still reading it. You know, no, you're you're on the way, you're very much on the way. But it's a, it's much more. I think uh, like a highly would talk about it's kind of a path of inhabitation rather than uh, so you're you know you're really 
coming to inhabit the world of that that, that, that that's trying to articulate for you, elaborate for you. Sorry, not really great answer for you. <coughs> Sense to myself of an idea of philosophy of Europe. 
and very early on I came to think that whatever it's going to be, it's going to be an inquiry of a mixed type. And, uh, and so I think that, I hope that inside myself, yes, inside myself, there'd be a, a dimension of my own work which would be an overcoming of the two cultures. You also mentioned that African who had a very interesting perspective. St. Augustine. Yeah. Augustine is very interesting in study because he's not only a Roman African, but he's also a Christian and a Platonist. So mm -hmm. he's inside himself, he has this kind of uh, formative dimension of what it is to be European, mm -hmm. which I'm very, very interested in. Uh, Sorry, I've got some other questions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Varieties of neoliberalism. 
I want to say that there's not only economic neoliberalism. Okay, that uh, economic neoliberalism wants the limitless extension of the logic of the market into every domain of life. Now, if you think of any domain of life, right, if, if we can even make sense of that, I mean, I think ultimately it's problematic, but if you can make sense of domains of life, then there will be neoliberals of lots of kinds. All of them want to seek hegemony for their logic. So, for example, in, uh, excuse me, Lenin and Stalin, there's the idea that um, a certain, uh, there'd be the limitless politicization of life in a certain way <coughs> to try to actualize equality. And that would be one kind of neoliberal hegemony. And then you could have others which would be a kind of religious neoliberalism where you think that the dimension of our life caught up with um, faith should be operative throughout our life. And then you might think of Iran or somewhere like that as a place in which that revolutionary ideal was tried to, was a, 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 an effort to implement that. Now what in our world today, in the West and in Europe, we can hope for as um, an alternative is the subject of that other paper. Uh, but but um, I, do, I, I do think that it will be very important uh, to take very seriously an idea of the homo philosophicus, where there, in this case uniquely, the domain is not given. So where there's this idea of the inexhaustible surge inside the idea of thinking the domain. And so no other, and no other in fact, no other domain will be given either, ultimately. And so this idea that we're not going to um, think that there is one logic fit for everything and so on would be the sort of movement to, I would anticipate here. But I must say I'd have to be on the side of Heidegger and Nietzsche in thinking it may take 2,000 years. So 2,000 years to get <coughs> to this point, it may well take another 2,000 to get out of it. Anyhow, don't, don't, don't waste your time with Nietzsche. <laughs> you have to be fast. If you, if you get uh, that book, which seems to be the often, yeah, on neoliberalism. We've got, we've got to stop those. I mean, you have to get that out in three years. But I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight, and I'll just bring to your attention that there is a conference called Valuing the Humanities, which the forum is organising for Friday the 17th of December from 2.30 till 5 in the Hong Kong Theatre here at the London School of Economics. So four very good speakers, including James Lagerman, Martin Nussbaum, Lord Rees of Ludlow and Richard Smith. So that's on Valuing the Humanities on Friday the 17th of December. But for now, thank you very much for coming, and uh, you can go now. Thank you.